Chapter sixty four of American Scenery, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maggie Travers. American Scenery, Volume One by Nathaniel Parker Willis. Chapter sixty four Squam Lake, New Hampshire. The Indianesque but not very pretty name in which this lovely body of waters rejoices has been once or twice changed but the force of usage has uniformly triumphed dr dwight call it sullivan's lake after major general sullivan formerly governor of the state and the adjoining waters of the winnispiego he named lake wentworth after another governor but both have fallen into disuse and the original names have reverted the great defect in American lakes, generally, is the vast, unrelieved expanse of water, without islands or promontories, producing a fatigue on the eye similar to that of the sea. Squam and Winnispiego lakes are exceptions to this observation. They are connected by so narrow an isthmus that five hundred dollars, it is said, would pay the expanse of uniting them, and their islands together amount, it is said also, to exactly three hundred and sixty-five. As this singular coincidence has been remarked of several other lakes, however, the assertion seems rather apocryphal. Some of the very loveliest scenery in the world lies about these two lakes, yet they are seldom visited. The country around is fertile and sufficiently cultivated to soften the appearance of wilderness, which it might receive from the prevalency of forest and the luxuriance of vegetation but the mountains which form its background from every point shutting it in like an amphitheatre seem to seclude it from the flow of population nature is a capricious beauty and like most other beauties has her best looks and her favourable times to be seen to advantage beautiful as she is at squam lake in the first plentitude of spring she is more beautiful in the first flush over her face of the bright colours of autumn the omnal tints of our forests are peculiar to America, but there are some parts of the country where, for various reasons, this phenomenon is much more beautiful than at others. The moisture of the land about these lakes, the extreme luxuriance of the sap in consequence, and the liability of the whole of this region to sudden changes of temperature contribute to its brilliancy. The sharp frost of a single night affects a change very often that seems almost miraculous, and the multiplication of these gaudy colors in the mirror of the surrounding waters the bright golden crimson and purple islands and the gorgeous hillsides all reflected and redoubled make it a scene which the imagination never could preconceive from a late publication we extract a description of this phenomenon made from observation and finished with some care the first severe frost had come and the miraculous change had passed upon the leaves which is known only in america the blood-red sugar-maple with a leaf brighter and more delicate than the circassian lip stood here and there in the forest like the sultan's standard and hoist the solitary and far-seen aristocrat of the wilderness the birch with its spirit-like and amber leaves ghost of the departed summer turned out along the edges of the woods like a lining of the palest gold. The broad sycamore and the fan-like catalpa flaunted their saffron foliage in the sun, spotted with gold like the wings of a ladybird. The kingly oak, with its summit shaken bare, still hid its majestic trunk in a drapery of sumptuous dyes, like a stricken monarch, 
gathering his robes of state about him, to die royally in his purple. The tall poplar, with its minaret of silver leaves, stood blanched like a coward in the dying forest, burthening every breeze with its complainings. The hickory paled through its enduring green, the bright berries of the mountain ash, flushed with a more sanguine glory in the unobstructed sun. The gaudy tulip-tree, the sybarite of vegetation, stripped of its golden cups, still drank the intoxicating light of noonday in leaves than which the lip of an Indian shell was never more delicately tinted. The still deeper-dyed vines of the lavish wilderness, perishing with the noble things whose summer they had shared, outshone them in their decline, as a woman in her death is heavenlier than the being on whom in life she leaned. And alone and unsympathizing in this universal decay, outlaws from nature, stood the fir and the hemlock, their frowning and somber heads darker and less lovely than ever, in contrast with the death-strict glory of their companions. The dull colors of English obnal foliage give you no conception of this marvelous phenomenon. The change here is gradual. In America it is the work of a night, of a single frost. Oh, to have seen the sunset on hills bright in the still green and lingering summer, and to awake in the morning to a spectacle like this. It's as if a myriad of rainbows were laced through the tree-tops, as if the sunsets of a summer, gold, purple, and crimson, had been fused in the alembic of the west, and poured back in a new deluge of light and color over the wilderness. It is as if every leaf in these countless trees has been painted to outflush the tulip, as if, by some electric miracle, the dyes of the earth's heart had struck upward, and her crystals and ores, her sapphires, hyacinths, and rubies, had let forth their imprisoned colors to mount through the roots of the forest, and, like the angels that in olden time entered the bodies of the dying, reanimate the perishing leaves, and reveal an hour in their bravery. End of chapter 64 Recording by Maggie Travers in Casilla, Mississippi.